Would you pray with me before we really look into God's word? Lord, how privileged we are that we have your word, your written word for us. As I stand here, I'm I'm well aware that there are hundreds, there are literally about a thousand people groups in the world today that do not have your written word in their language, where they can understand it in, in, in their heart, home language. And we here have so many different translations and versions in the English language. Lord, you have given us such a privilege, and it's not something to be wasted, yet it, it's a responsibility. That just as you gave, that you, you, you gave such privilege to your people Israel in the Old Covenant, yet with that privilege came the responsibility of being your shining light to the world, to demonstrate to the world who you are, and to shine your light and your glory through the world. Lord, help us do that. And part of that would be simply sitting like Jesus' friend Mary did, sitting at your feet and hearing your word now, absorbing it and and just listening to you and what you would say to our hearts and minds and how you would challenge us to be different, to change, to grow, to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will do that and, and just help me to be your instrument in that process. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning is a text about prayer. Specifically, it's a text, it's a passage of scripture about praying in Jesus' name. That's why I made the title, What's in a Name? And as I begin this morning, I'm very well aware that there are those of you who have much more experience in prayer than I do. And there are those of you who are more disciplined and more consistent in your prayer life than I am. So I say that simply to tell you that I'm not up here as the prayer guru. So as if you you have to emulate everything that I do. Please don't do that. I'm not up here to display my prayer greatness as some kind of great prayer warrior. I just am up here to, with the Lord's help, open up the scriptures to us so that we can be in a position where we can hear what God is saying to us about prayer. And that scripture, and we'll read it in a little bit, but that scripture is found in John chapter 14, beginning at verse 12, and that will be uh, projected in a, in a bit. But I would, though, though I'm not a prayer guru, <laughs> I would like to share an experience uh, that I've had concerning this idea of uh, praying in the name of Jesus, what our passage is really all about. When I was uh, 32 years old, I became the pastor of a small church in rural upstate New York in the mountains. 
And this was a, just a small church, small congregation of people in a very small town. And as probably many of you know, when you're in a small town or the life around a small town, a small village really, uh, there are certain traditions that just kind of get embedded in small town life. And one such tradition in this particular town was a Memorial Day tradition. It wasn't a weird tradition, but it was something that um, they did all the time, and it was an important thing for the community. Every Memorial Day, they would have a Memorial Day parade. Fire trucks, servicemen, you name it, in the Memorial Day parade. And at the end of the parade, they would have a Memorial Day ceremony to honor, to celebrate those that had given their life in service for their country. Well, as I guess maybe the new pastor in town or something, the organizing committee for the Memorial Day parade and the ceremony that year came to me and asked if I would be the one to give the official prayer, and yes, they actually have official prayer, during the Memorial Day ceremony. And I said, yes, I would do that. And as I began to prepare for that day and to prepare for the prayer, I confess that I began to question in my mind and in my heart whether or not I should publicly and verbally pray in the name of Jesus, to say it like that. You might say, well, why would you even think otherwise that you would do that? Well, at least in my mind, what was going on there was an acknowledgement that there were going to be, even though it's a small town, there was going to be a lot of people there in a very public sphere. There were going to be a lot of different types of people present for this ceremony, as you can imagine. And um, most of them, well, some of them would be believers in Jesus, but most of them by far would not be believers in Jesus. There was also this particular town is close enough to New York City that um, the way things work there is that on a long holiday weekend, like Memorial Day, which is sort of like the unofficial beginning of summer, there were going to be a lot of people in town who were there coming up from New York City to enjoy the long weekend, and they would be witnessing this ceremony as well. And let me tell you, you don't know what, anything can come out of New York City. So I don't know what to expect with that. And not only that, but in our local community, there was actually a sizable Jewish population, and many of them would be there as well. So in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking, I want to give this prayer, but do I, do I actually use the words in Jesus' name? And of course, I'm thinking, is this doing that, is that going to offend somebody out there? And then I began to realize, of course, that this was going to be a great opportunity and actually a rare opportunity to do just that, to declare the name of Jesus as Lord in a very public sphere, a very public setting. And I didn't want to miss that opportunity. And I also realized that for me to pray and not name the name of Jesus would 
was going to be uh, disingenuous. It, it, was, it would be fake. It wouldn't be a real prayer. I don't know how to pray, or I, don't, I can't pray in any other way other than in the name of Jesus. So if I didn't name Jesus publicly in my prayer, then I would actually be dishonoring him, would I not? And I couldn't do that, not to my Lord and Savior, no matter what the consequences might be. And you know how our fears can just kind of carry us away into all kinds of crazy scenarios about what might happen. So I went ahead and I, I prayed, and at the end of the prayer, I very clearly and openly said, in the name of Jesus, I pray these things. And of course, there was no, no pushback. <laughs> there was no problem. Nobody was offended, at least not that I know of anyway. And there was no issue involved there. But I, I share that story um, as, as one experience that I had in which I intensely considered what it really meant to pray in the name of Jesus and even what it might sort of cost to do such a thing. Our scripture passage this morning, again, as I mentioned, is from John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. And as we look at that passage, we are in a very real sense sort of parachuting right into the middle of an important dialogue that Jesus is having with his disciples on the very eve of his arrest and his crucifixion. So understand that we are just sort of para-dropping right into the middle of this thing. And so context is going to be important for us to understand here, but Jesus, understand, is less than 24 hours from leaving his disciples. He's less than 24 hours away from being betrayed by Judas, his very own disciple, um, arrested by the Jewish leaders, swiftly brought to an unfair and unjust trial, swiftly condemned to die, and put on the cross to death. All in a very short time, this would be happening. So, in fact, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is right in the middle of telling, his, telling the disciples that they're going to be okay, even though he's, all this is going to happen to him, and that he's going away, and that he's about to leave them. So, with that, let me read John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Pretty definite words of Jesus there. When Jesus talks here about asking for anything in his name and him doing it in response, I can imagine that for the disciples sitting there with him, perhaps this was in the setting of what we call the the Last Supper, that meal, I can imagine for his disciples, his words were probably a bit puzzling knowing what might be in their minds, the confusion and so forth. 
But I dare say, as puzzling as it might have been for the disciples, it's even more puzzling for us, for you and me, is it not? I mean, it just raises a whole bunch of flags and questions as we read this passage of Scripture. It's because what Jesus says there, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. What he says there, if we're honest, it doesn't seem to ring true with our experience, does it? It just doesn't seem to happen. I mean, you might say, well, I prayed in Jesus' name for a very sincere prayer. I meant it with all my heart. I prayed for a, a, a nice sunny day so that I can spend that day with my son and we can enjoy ourselves. And it rained. What's that? Is that Jesus didn't do what I asked him to do in his name? Or a, little more, a lot more tragically, I prayed for my friend who has cancer, a pastor friend of mine, a church planter friend of mine. And I can think of a million reasons why the Lord should heal him. But he didn't get healed. He hasn't been healed. What we pray for and when, when, when we, in our own experience, what Jesus says here, it just doesn't seem to always match up, does it? So what in the world does Jesus mean here when he says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Whatever you ask, he says it twice. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Well, whatever Jesus means by this, asking in his name, he does not mean that we are to treat Jesus' name as sort of a, a magic word or a, 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 a formula that unlocks something. Um, I've been guilty of this, and I dare say probably you've been guilty of this from time to time at least. We present our requests to God, and we make a a beautiful case in prayer for what we want. And then as we finish our prayer, we we feel like we, we better emphasize our prayer by mentioning for sure that we're praying in the name of Jesus. So that comes at the end of our prayer, say, in the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. So when we have this mindset that the name of Jesus is sort of like a a magic word, we, we would never admit to that, but sometimes we fall into that way of thinking, then saying, in the name of Jesus, I pray, becomes kind of like pressing the play button when you're ready to watch a movie, sort of an activation thing. If we don't do it, we're not going to have the movie. You might, you might have a beautiful prayer all laid out and excellent reasoning and very eloquent even, and all that, like you might get your popcorn already, you might get your movies selected, you might be all cozy and nice on the couch, on the sofa, but if you don't play the, press the play button, nothing's going to happen. So you've got to get in that, in Jesus' name, because that activates it, right? That's the thing that'll do it. Now, Jesus did not mean for us to use his name in that way. I want to be very clear. I think most of us kind of get that, okay? Um, Jesus doesn't want us to use his name 
as an activation code for things. That actually would be violation of one of the Ten Commandments, that you should not take the name of the Lord in vain. When we, when we approach prayer in that way, we're actually appro- approaching prayer from a pagan standpoint because the pagan, the viewpoint of the pagan is that if, if he will do whatever needs to be done or he will say the right words, whatever needs to be said, then whoever or whatever that pagan is praying to is obligated to respond in the way that he wants him to. That's a pagan approach to prayer. And we dare not approach our Lord Jesus Christ, our God and maker, in that way. He is not our genie in the bottle. So if that's not what Jesus meant by asking in his name, you might say, well, okay, I get that. I think I get the fact that praying in the name of Jesus really means that we pray for the Lord's will to be done, right? That we we pray according to the will of God. And I would say, yes, you're right. You're accurate. That is correct. Certainly, praying in the name of Jesus means that we place our own desire, what we want, our own will, in submission to God's desire, in submission to what he wants, in submission to that which he has in, uh, designed for us. That is praying according to God's will, and that is definitely included in what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. But the problem that we have here is if we, we stop there, we, have a, we do have a problem because that's not exactly what Jesus said in this passage. If we read verse 13 again, Jesus does not say, whatever you ask according to my will, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Going to verse 14, he does not say, if you ask me anything according to my will, I will do it. But he does say, whatever you ask in my name. There is, I submit, a a difference. There is praying according to the will of God. And that is what Jesus did, is it not, in the garden, that he he would be doing this in just a matter of a few hours, where in agony of the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulders, Jesus said, if there's any other way, Heavenly Father, take this cup away from me. But then he says, nevertheless, not... Not what I want, but what you want. Submitting his own human desires and will to the will of God the Father. That's certainly part of it. But I would suggest, and I think we'll find out, that praying in the name of Jesus has, an, has, a, has a depth to it that's even greater than that. How are we going to get at that? Well, the context of the passage is going to help us discover what Jesus really means here. Remember that Jesus is preparing his disciples for the reality that he is going to be leaving them very soon. If we go all the way back to chapter 13, the beginning of that chapter in the book of John, which is really where this whole dialogue between Jesus and his disciples begins as he's preparing them for his own departure. 
it says there, chapter 13, verse 1, and Isaac, thanks. Um, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knows that the hour, the time has come for him to depart. Then if we go later in chapter 13 down to verse 33, it says something in a similar vein where Jesus says to his disciples, yet a little while I'm with you. In other words, I'm just going to be with you for a short time more. Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He's laying it out there for them. I'm about to leave, and you can't come where I'm, come, where I'm going. So the disciples, what do you, how do you think they're responding here? Naturally, the disciples are confused. They're frightened. They're anxious about what's going to happen to Jesus, probably, but probably even more anxious about what's going to happen to them because their leader is just telling them that he's leaving. How are they going to carry on? How are they going to do and be what he's called them to do and to be without him there? This is the anxiety that the disciples are are feeling at this time. So Jesus begins to reassure them, and that's what this passage in John 14 is all about. He, he begins to reassure them that, that uh, though he's going away physically, what they know to be true about who Jesus is is not going to change. Who he is is not going to change. And what they know to be true about his mission in the world is not going to change one bit either. In fact, Jesus says that the, his mission in the world is going to actually be enhanced and expanded as he begins to work through them to complete his mission. So I'm kind of summarizing what leads up to our passage here in verse 12, uh, going to verse 14. And in this context of reassuring them of all these things, Jesus drills down on something that might be a little bit unexpected. He drills down on the fact of his unity with God the Father. And this is what we read in chapter 14, verses 10 to 11. Jesus saying to his disciples, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Do you not believe that, he says, that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? There's a unity that we share, a oneness that we share. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. It's a command there. Believe what I'm telling you. Believe in the oneness that I have with God the Father. Or else, if you can't, Just believe what I say. Believe on account of the works themselves. The miraculous signs, the ministry of Jesus, what John in his gospel calls signs. 
that point to who Jesus is and what his mission is. And he goes even farther than this as he drills down on his, on his oneness with God the Father. He also drills down on the disciples' oneness with him. As Jesus is in unity with the Father, he says, you as my followers are in unity with me. In just a few verses later, verse 20, Jesus says, same context of this passage, Jesus says to them, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Let those words sink in. You'll know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus is emphasizing his oneness with the Father and the oneness that all of his followers have with him, their unity with him. Jesus, again, is talking about oneness with him. I know this is difficult to, to kind of wrap our minds around, and, and it is. But the Bible, fortunately, helps us with, a, with an analogy for this. It's very much like the oneness that a husband and wife experience in the marriage relationship. You know, the Bible says that the, the, the man shall leave his father and mother and cling, hold fast to his wife, and what? The two shall become one. The Bible actually teaches that, that the oneness shared between a husband and a wife is very similar to the kind of oneness that is experienced between Christ and all of those who belong to him in faith. If we're not going to turn there, because... We won't belabor it, but Ephesians chapter 5, that chapter makes that whole point. And in that context, talking about the marriage relationship, the Apostle Paul brings out that verse that says, the two, husband and wife, are one. And then he says, but I'm actually talking about the relationship between Christ and the church. That's you and that's me, the church, our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we talk about oneness with Christ, and in this passage in John, it's very much like the oneness that is experienced between a husband and a wife. My wife and I have been married almost 25 years. In June, it'll be 25 years. And there certainly are times when it doesn't feel like oneness. But overall, when you grow together in your marriage... You're growing in oneness, are you not? Your goals become one. Your priorities become one. What excites you becomes one. You operate in life together as a unit, as one. That's what oneness is all about. And and the Bible teaches that, that that is a pointer to our oneness with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that's the kind of relationship that exists between you and me and, between, and with Christ. So asking or praying in the name of Jesus, back to our passage, 
is really asking or is praying from the stance of our oneness with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus means. This kind of asking or praying that Jesus is talking about is praying that gives expression to our oneness with Jesus Christ. And that oneness is with Jesus. It's like the oneness that we find in the marriage relationship, but it's far greater. It's far deeper than a marriage relationship. And what's more, it's an eternal oneness, unlike the marriage relationship. When our prayer life is an expression of our oneness with Jesus, Jesus says he will do whatever we ask. The key is that our asking is in the context of our oneness with Christ. So what does it look like then to really, really pray in the name of Jesus? To ask the Lord for something out of the stance of being one with the Lord Jesus. What, are the, what does that mean for our prayer life? What are some of the implications of this oneness for our praying? just want to round out the message this morning by sharing some of those with you. First of all, let's not make the mistake of saying, I can't live or pray out of a position of oneness with Jesus because I just don't have it all together yet. I'm just not there yet. I'm just, my life isn't cleaned up enough yet to be able to say that or to do that. Well, I've got probably bad news for you if that's your position, your thinking. You are never going to be good enough for a relationship of oneness with Jesus Christ. You're never going to have it all together. The good news, however, is you don't have to have it all together because Jesus Christ has it all together on your behalf. He has it all together for you. Oneness with Jesus does not come from us finally getting it all together and getting it all right It comes from trusting with every fiber of our being that Jesus, in fact, has it all together for us. That's the basis of our oneness. Not anything that we do or how good we are or how well we behave. Another implication for our prayer life. Let's also not make the mistake of equating hardships in life with a lack of oneness in Jesus Christ. We do this, don't we? I confess that I do this as well. You know, when something bad happens to you, does that mean that God doesn't love you? That he's actually against you? When something, when some sickness comes that you might not recover from, does that mean God doesn't love you? Does that mean that you're not in a position of, by faith, oneness with the Lord Jesus Christ? I'll just say that your oneness with Jesus is not based on the ups and downs, the good things in life, the bad things in life, the circumstances of life. Your oneness with the Lord Jesus Christ is based on his shed blood on the cross for you. And that's a fact, period, done. Done. 
There are great trials and agonies and disappointments in life. But the Bible says nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Our oneness is not based on what's happening in our life right now. Good or bad. It doesn't work that way. A third implication. To pray in the name of Jesus. This gets a little bit more mind-blowing now. Okay? To play, pray in the name of Jesus, as, as he's talking about here, is to place the glory of God above every other desire that we could have. Yikes. To place the glory of God above every other desire that we could have. Look again at verse 13, what Jesus says. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And it continues. Here's the reason why. Here's the goal. He says, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The end result the, the aiming point, the final goal in our asking in the name of Jesus and his doing it is that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Glory, glorified, that's kind of a stained glass churchy word, is it not? It simply means to honor, to honor someone, to, to magnify that person, to speak very well of that person. That's what to glorify the name of anyone, but especially the name of God means. If we pray out of our oneness in Jesus Christ, the Son, then our greatest joy and our greatest desire will be that God is spoken well of, that God is honored, that God is magnified in whatever it is we're praying about. And sometimes, and while I confess this is often a great mystery to me, to you, sometimes, in fact, very often, the Lord uses those trials in life. The Lord uses those disappointments, those agonies in life that are very real. He uses those to be glorified in us. Only he can do that. Now, this last implication is one that honestly challenges me the greatest right now. See, when we do anything in the name of someone else, or when we do anything in the name of even an institution, we are doing that for the benefit of that other person, are we not? We're doing it for the benefit of that institution, if you will. We're not expecting return for ourselves. Example, timely, but might be kind of negative right now. Taxes, paying taxes. Um, When the IRS employees are collecting taxes, they are collecting taxes in the name of the government, are they not? And it is for the benefit of the government. I know in our system it's supposed to come back and benefit the people. That's another discussion. But um, they are collecting taxes in the name of the government. In other words, those IRS employees are not taking your tax money and putting it right in their pockets. They're doing it for the benefit of that in the name of the government. When we do anything in the name of someone else or anything else, we are doing it so that that other person will gain, that other person will benefit. 
And that's what it means to pray also in the name of Jesus. We are praying in such a way. We are praying with our heart's desire that, God, you will gain from this. You will benefit from this. Not me. What a radical reorientation to prayer that is, is it not? I have to confess that until I studied this passage, I had never really thought about it in that way before. I have to confess that to me, prayer seemed more for my own benefit somehow. But what a radical rethinking it is when we realize that when we pray in the name of Jesus, what we're actually asking for is that he, be, he receive the benefit for whatever it is, that he be the one that gains from this. Wow. I tell you, that, as I thought and even begun to pray about, that has begun to transform my way of thinking about prayer. And it's actually begun to transform my prayers already. That he would gain. I'm not saying that's an easy thing to pray that way. But that's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. To say, oh God, out of my oneness with the Lord Jesus Christ, my greatest desire is that you gain from this. You say, what, what in the world can God gain? He already has everything. He can gain glory. He can gain honor and reputation and praise where it's not happening yet. One final note. We really can't escape and we shouldn't escape Jesus' definite words here that says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Let's not run away from that. That's that's what he says very clearly. You say, I've been praying for something and I've been very faithful in that prayer, meaning to say that I've been praying this maybe for a long time. I can't see, honestly, genuinely, before the God of heaven, I can't see anything like sin in my life that would be creating a a wrong or a mistaken motivation for this prayer. In fact, I can see a thousand ways that God would, would benefit and gain if he did what I'm asking. I can see hundreds of ways, perhaps, that God might be glorified from this. And yet, he's not doing what, what I'm asking. It comes back to that, what we're, it doesn't seem to match up with our experience. Well, let me tell you one thing. There's one thing that you and I can bank on, and that's Jesus' word. If Jesus says, I will do it, you can better believe he will do it. He will do it. And let's be careful to understand what Jesus promises here and what he does not promise. He guarantees that he will do that which is prayed in his name and all we've been talking about, what all that means just now. But he does not say how he is going to accomplish it. He does not guarantee that he's going to accomplish it or to do it in the time frame that you might want it done. He does not guarantee, he does not promise that he will do it uh, in the means by which you think it ought to be done or your plan, whatever it might be, and that you are presenting very genuinely to him. 
He doesn't promise even that it will be done in this life. He doesn't say that you'll understand how I'm going to do it or how I'm going to bring it about. He promises none of these things. He only promises that he will do it. That's what we can bank on. We walk by faith, not by sight. So, our assignment then is to open ourselves this week to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this is what I challenge you as we wrap up here. To ask God that we might truly pray out of oneness with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we can't do this, not in our own power or strength. We're kind of overwhelmed by what Jesus says here. Is it truly possible? We're so weak in faith. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Praise to your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.